Andrew J. Cutler, MD of Sunny Upstate Medical University in Syracuse in New York and his colleagues reported that in a two-part study, children with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder or ADHD use the dextroamphetamine transdermal system or DATS or DATS saw a significant improvement in symptoms in a laboratory classroom setting. Benefits of it were seen as soon as two hours after dosing and were continuously maintained for 12 hours thereafter. Nice. So based on these articles, Doc, it seems that this could be a breakthrough in dealing with children struggling with ADHD. What is the conventional method of treating it? Well, the typical components of ADHD are inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. Children with ADHD may have trouble, you know, sitting still, following directions, completing tasks at home or even in school. So the goal of the treatment is to help children follow rules, concentrate and have good relationships with their parents, teachers and peers. All of this, which is essential for normal development. So the main medications used to treat ADHD are stimulants and also non-stimulants, but sometimes antidepressants can also be used. These treatment options have been evaluated for safety in, and no two children are alike. So it really has to be tailor-made, really. ADHD uh, antidepressants, really? Yeah, so that's for those who don't respond to stimulants or the non-stimulant medications. Okay. But the other common treatment is actually behavior therapy, using things like positive reinforcement for good behavior and negative reinforcement for unwanted behavior. Even diets have been suggested as helpful in managing ADHD. Mm. Usually, of course, it's the combination. You know, you can't just follow one route alone. Um, So, you know, diets that are gluten-free, perhaps, omega-3 rich, and maybe trying to avoid uh, additives in foods. Colorants and sugar are huge ones that help me with my son. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, this this, uh, uh, publication that you just mentioned shows a new delivery of a common medication for ADHD, that is stimulants. Um, And with this delivery, it can actually help avoid gastrointestinal side effects because, you know, when you take swallowed Mm, medication Uh, plus it gives some flexibility in the treatment duration and it also gives an option for children who may not be able or willing to swallow medication you know a lot of children find it you know uncomfortable Mm. swallowing yeah and also allowing visual confirmation of treatment compliance doc we're talking about ulcerative colitis now it's a, a chronic inflammatory bowel condition that causes ulceration and inflammation of the lining of the large intestine research has found that the gut microbiome can affect brain signals, activating areas of the brain that regulate emotions. So how is the gut and brain connected? Well, the link between the gut and the central nervous system is actually called the gut-brain axis. The gut muscle and the lining or what we call mucosa are actually controlled by nerve signals, suggesting that how we feel can influence them. And of course, the gut also communicates back to the central nervous system. So how our stomach feels can also influence how we emotionally feel. Mm-hmm. More recent research has found that the gut microbiome, which is the microorganisms in the gut, they can affect brain signals and they activate areas of the brain that regulate especially emotions. So people with ulcerative colitis, they are more likely than others to experience anxiety or depression. In fact, as many as a third of people with inflammatory bowel disease experience symptoms of anxiety 
and a quarter experience symptoms of depression. I mean, just imagine facing a stressful event. I mean, it may be an exam, an interview. Mm. What does that do to your stomach? Yeah. I mean, that butterflies in the stomach. Yes, thing. I was just thinking about that. This one makes yeah, so much more yeah. sense now. Yeah. Yeah. And that increased gas production mm-hmm. or the frequency of motion. They're all related to that emotional state of the individual mm. and through that gut, you know, brain gut axis, really. Mm. I think also when you when you're discussing something like ulcerative colitis or any kind of um, bowel issue, there's already this sort of stress anxiety on how you're going to manage your body and the body oh, functions yeah. during the day, right? So you're already perhaps stressed more than a normal average person in terms of how you even organize your day. Right? Is that yes. Not correct. Yes. No, absolutely. So there are many dimensions to. You know, the mental health Mm. components of people with a chronic uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. And that can even be, you know, self-image issues. Mm. It can be, you know, a feeling of not wanting to socialize or be with others. So it's all different components, Mm. not just the physical part as well. All right. But how serious are we talking about this? I mean, like this ulcerative colitis, how serious is the damage that it causes to someone's mental faculty? How far does it go? Yeah. Well, actually, a study in 2017 found that about 30% of people recently diagnosed with uh, inflammatory bowel disease also experience anxiety or depression. Uh, And another study found that mood disorders were more likely to precede ulcerative colitis than the other way around. You know, meaning if you have anxiety or depression, Mm. you're at higher risk of developing colitis or even irritable bowel syndrome. Does it work the other way around? If you're an anxious person, if you're very nervous and you're always constantly fearful of things, does that cause ulcerative colitis or does it, is it both ways? Uh, It's actually both ways. I mean, it can be if you're a very anxious person uh, because there's a study that actually found that people who are more anxious developed ulcerative colitis at a later phase. Right. So, yeah. Now, I have to tread a bit lightly here, uh, being not of the <laughs> sex this article's about, but experts say that men are more likely to channel anger into aggression, be it violence or violent outbursts. What do you mean? What do you mean? Exactly. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Still <laughs> calm, JD. Yeah. Calm down now, darling. Calm down. Thomas Harbin, a clinical psychologist and author of the book Beyond Anger, A Guide for Men, says that in addition to anger potentially being dangerous for the people around you, it's also pretty terrible for your own health. Mm. Now, the title of this article is the question we're posing to you, Doc. Why should male anger be treated as a mental health issue? Well, we need to first remember there are two things here. There's mental health and mental illness. Mental health can be positive or negative. I mean, Mm. anger, sadness, fear, and disinterest are negative mental health states. But if anger is prolonged or exaggerated, it can then be considered a mental health issue. Of course, it can be a symptom of a mental illness. Right. As you know, as depressed men often show anger and irritability compared to right. you know feelings of depression or sadness. It can also be part of a personality disorder, as it's seen in antisocial personality disorder, which is again more common in men than in women. And it can also be a feature of drug or alcohol use disorder, which is again more prevalent among men. But if not attended to, it can lead to aggression, violence, and affect relationships and bring on isolation. Uh, mm-hmm. Ideally, it's important to first develop some awareness and then seek help and assessment. So you want to rule out all those you know, mental illness uh, conditions yep. that I spoke about earlier. Mm. But it is due to an underlying mental illness, a substance use disorder that has to be addressed. Right. Even if it's not, it's still something that can be controlled and managed. Can you look at sort of 
you know, times in your life or right now with the pandemic, like there's a lot to sort of be frustrated and angry about and, you know, work's difficult for people and everyone has different triggers and tipping points, etc. So at what point, you know, does someone need to to sort of seek help? You know, is there any such thing as sort of, oh, it's self-realization, you've got to figure out yourself and if so, how? Or is there some sort of external intervention that needs to happen in cases like these? Yes, so actually chronic anger can affect your mental health. It can trigger anxiety, depression, or even substance use problems. Mm. It can affect your social health and impact your work and your relationships and of course interactions with others. It also affects your physical health because it actually, chronic anger can actually put your body in a near constant state of fight or flight. And in the long run, this causes tissue breakdown, hypertension, heart disease, and other cardiovascular problems. So what's the difference between adaptive and destructive anger? The most serious sign of destructive anger is hurting yourself or somebody else or pets or property. Other signs include, you know, frequently regretting things you did or said while angry, getting disproportionately angry about small or insignificant things, or always just feeling angry and feeling you can't control your actions or words. And anger management is actually an effective tool in controlling this destructive anger. It includes awareness, uh, identifying stresses, changing cognitions, and of course, behavior therapy. According to a new literature review led by the Murdoch Children's uh, Research Institute, one third of children who experience a concussion develop a mental health problem afterwards, which could persist for several years post-injury. The review Mm -hmm. found mental health should be evaluated as part of standard pediatric concussion assessment and management. Now, you know, kids play in fall all the time. I know my kiddo uh, had a fall last year and had concussion. Wow. Yeah. So what are the signs that there's a more serious issue? with a child who's had a concussion? Well, a concussion is a temporary unconscious state or confusion caused by a blow on the head, which is a common uh, childhood injury. <laughs> uh, you know, the signs yeah. usually are either internalizing or externalizing. In fact, a review found that 36% of children and adolescents who experience a concussion had significant levels of internalizing problems like withdrawing, isolating themselves, anxiety, depression, and even post-traumatic stress. 20% had externalizing problems like aggression or attention problems and hyperactivity after concussion. Usually significant improvements in these symptoms actually occur within three to six months post-injury, but a minority experienced persisting symptoms for several years afterwards. So essentially it's not the norm. this should be reassuring, right? Yeah. Because uh, I too had a concussion playing cricket and being hit by the ball. Really? So did JD. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, really? So now we know what's going on with the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Was that in Epo, JD? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because we're both from St. Michael's as well, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. And we had a big cricket club we, there. Yeah. A big field as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not a product of mental health problem now. <laughs> no, yeah. You I never guess I'm know. Recovered. That's why you go into the field, Doc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what are the standard types of evaluation a pediatrician should do to ascertain the child, uh, if the child needs further you know, psychological assessment or assistance? Yeah, so typically mental health assessment may not be a routine part of pediatric concussion assessment and management. Mm. And so that makes you know many cases left untreated when a child has a concussion they might actually look fine but you can't see the underlying impact so you know it's important for mental health to form part of the concussion management 
in fact, many studies have shown the strongest predictors uh, of persistent post-concussive uh, symptoms in youth is previous mental health problems, uh, especially depression and anxiety. So getting a proper psychiatric history is really essential. Right. And then engaging with parents and teachers in understanding whatever behavioral or emotional changes that are evident post-concussion will be important as well. I think it finally says that, you know, we need to work in a holistic approach mm. to especially children who experience uh, concussion uh, to prevent, you know, the long-term mental health implications. Studies led by researchers at Duke University and the University of Michigan found that people with mental disorders in youth tend to have signs of accelerated aging in midlife and higher risk of developing other diseases and of dying earlier. The findings suggest that improving individuals' mental health could enhance their overall health and extend their lives. Really? Doc, are we expecting Mm. an entire generation dying early because of struggling with this pandemic? Well, this study published in the... Journal of American Medical Association of the JAMA examined data from more than 2 million uh, aged 10 to 60 years uh, across the subsequent 30 years or until death. And the analysis showed that people who had been admitted to hospitals for mental health problems, uh, including you know substance use or psychotic mood and behavioral disorders, they tended to have diseases such as cancer, diabetes, or cardiovascular disease at a younger age. And to die earlier than those who did not have mental problems in earlier in life. So people with a history of mental illnesses were also more likely to develop more chronic health conditions and to be hospitalized more often for longer periods. Uh, These were seen in both men and women. Now, to correlate this to the current generation struggling with the pandemic is a little premature, Mm -hmm. as not everyone is developing a mental disorders. Um, Yes, we actually, even in my practice, we're seeing a rise in numbers but it could also be that there is more awareness and understanding of mental health issues now compared to before. I mean, we talk about it much more openly. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true. And it's it's a subject of discussion, actually. Yes. Yeah, yes. quite around the dinner table and stuff now. Exactly. And also those who seek treatment early and reach recovery actually have less risk compared to those who don't. So just talking about it will improve someone's mental health. I mean, in the case of this pandemic right now. Yeah. Well, actually, it comes down to the neuroplasticity of the brain. You know, it's it's not like the brain is plastic or anything. But we discussed this before where, you know, the brain is a unique organ and trauma or mental illnesses usually destroy nerve cells. But the treatment of the same can actually make them regrow. So, you know, we actually see the brain cells and nerves and neurons and all that regrowing after people get, you know, better from their mental disorder. Uh, In fact, a famous study showed that people who were treated for their depression with antidepressants when taken for a period longer than after the recovery, uh, which is usually dependent on the number of episodes of depression, brings about new nerve growth, undoing the decay caused by the illness itself. So treating mental disorders in young people not only improves their well-being, but may also prevent the onset of health problems later on.